Hello. Can you believe it? It's the week before Christmas. What a weird and wonderful year it has been. This is our last episode before we take a break for a couple of weeks, but we'll be back on January the 4th, ready and raring to go for 2021. I hope you all have a restful time before the new year. May your children be well behaved, sleep through the night, and most importantly, give you loads of cuddles. See you soon. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Most people know the story of Saru, the man who, adopted from India to Australia at the age of six, found his birth family through a meticulous search on Google Earth, or at least that's part of the story. You may have heard of Saru from his book or perhaps from the movie Lion. Now it's time to hear the story of Sue Briley, Saru's adoptive mother. It weaves together an incredible story of families torn apart, remade, and then remade again. She's written about her experiences in her book, Lioness. Sue joins me now. Welcome, Sue. How are you? Hello. It's good to be here. Let's talk about your family because I'm, I'm sure it had a huge influence on your attitude to family life. Both of your parents were migrants, effectively refugees from World War II. Your mother was originally from Hungary and your dad from Poland. What impact did that history have on your life growing up? Well, it was massive because um, it was a different kind of family. Um, At that time, the traditional family was English or Irish background and then, of course, World War happened and suddenly there was this huge influx of refugees trying to find safety abroad. So my parents had met just after the war's end in Germany and they got married there and had their first child, my elder sister, and the situation there was quite horrific and dangerous and they decided they had to flee So they made their way to Italy and got on a ship and thought they were going to Canada, in fact, but ended up in Australia. But that was the desperation of people to try and find safety and also a future. So as a young family with a little toddler, my sister was four years of age, they suddenly found themselves in Australia. And you talk about how there were lots of different migrants that had come to Australia with that terrible legacy of World War II and the violence that was going on then. And some families managed to transition into their new life and have a hopeful future. And other families, that legacy of violence translated into their family life. I don't know that you could tell me what it was that made one family transition well and another not, but you ended up in a family that didn't manage to leave the violence behind. Isn't That's right, isn't it? That's correct. And I think for a lot of families, that was the case. And while I pushed on through writing my book, I came to the end. And, you know, I really felt so sad because my parents would have loved to have stayed where they were born. 
They would have loved to have stayed with their original families, the support thereof. And even though a lot of people just say it's all down to seeking a new and more secure economic future, it's not all about that. And especially as you age, you realise this was something, a decision born of desperation. And, you know, it's, it's a very sad situation. And I think that coloured their skills at being good parents. You know, it was really quite challenging. Was writing the book helpful to see what had influenced your parents in the way they parented you? Or was it something you were aware of before you wrote the book? Oh, I knew from my very early years that this wasn't a successful situation. And certainly as I got older, I could identify the difference between my family and other happy families. And, you know, the difference was quite astounding. And really, it was it was very sad. Overall, there was just this overwhelming sadness. And, you know, I really found writing about it quite difficult. It was quite upsetting at times. Migration and the shifting of populations all around the world is not always for the best. I mean, your father was a violent and domineering man. And of course, reflecting on his past, which you didn't know much about um, growing up and um, still now, it sounds like you don't know a lot about his history. It must have been really challenging to grow up that way with a father who loomed so large and was such a fearful figure in your life. It certainly was. And as a child, it's a, it's a terrible thing that you have to figure out how to survive in that situation, to make the best of it when you're still just a kid and need really guidance and nurturing. But that wasn't happening. So it was really just me trying to figure out how to survive this situation. Can you describe what your mother was like? Because it seemed like she was unable to express her affection and her love, even while she was trying to care for you and raise you? That's true, because she was the youngest of 14 children Wow! in a small village in Hungary. Her life was very challenging, and she really didn't have kindness and love and adequate care when she was growing up. So that was her normal view and belief and understanding of being a mother and a child of that relationship. So it was only in later years that she sort of realised, hey, this isn't how it should be, that this isn't, my normal is not the real normal as it should be for children growing up. I think there was often elements of sadness and regret in that and certainly in her later years she expressed that to me. But, you know, she came into a relationship, pushed into a relationship, and I guess she was just trying to survive best she could as well. So far away from all her family, just totally isolated on the other side of the world with a domineering bully of a husband. And you often were cold hungry, too hot. You you and your sister shared a caravan for a while. Yes. 
Um, you were going through extreme hardship apart from how you were being parented. Can you tell us about the vision you had when you were 12? Well, I think that sort of came to me when I was at a particularly low point. So I don't know really truthfully where it came from. It just sort of was like a dream almost. But the thing was that it was real to me at that time and I felt it and saw it and had absolute belief that, hey, this happened to me. So I could either sort of scream and run inside and get under the bed or I could think about it a bit, which I did. I just quietly pondered on this thing that had happened to me. This could be interpreted as, okay, I'm totally insane. I've really totally lost my marbles or, (laughs) okay, this is a bit of a message. Maybe there's something of value in this. And what was the actual vision, though, Sue? What was it you saw? Oh, this, uh, just as I've written in my book, a, a small brown child. It was not super clear. I couldn't say boy or girl. But in the end, I thought, oh, you know, really, I'm just going to take it as a, a good thing, something special. And I did actually feel quite comforted by it. And um, it was a little sort of secret you know, you, it isn't the sort of thing you'd be discussing with all your classmates or whatever. It was just something for me. I held it within me. I didn't even tell my younger sister and we were very close. And in the vision you saw this child, but what was the emotion or the understanding you had in that moment? What was it that gave you comfort from that vision? The comfort was is that I decided to make it a comfort Right. So I just put it into my mind that it was like a a vision, a blessing, a sign. Okay, I can feel good. I did feel happy. I did feel the warmth. So they were all pluses and I just ran with it. And they were never that far from my mind. And I think they were the root of my desire to parent a child other than from my body. Now, how old were you when you got married? 17. Okay. I thought <laughs> I knew I'd read I knew i read that somewhere. Now, that sounds extraordinarily young to me. Does it sound young to you now reflecting back on how old you were? Look, the number is small, but to me, I don't think of it like that at all. I had grown up all intents and purposes. I was grown up, I was a woman, and I was ready for the next stage of my life. You know, in I had no opportunity to further my education. I wasn't going to stay a student for a long time. I had no chance of ever going to university and studying and staying in student mode. So if you're not a student, you're a working person, and a working person is an adult, and that's exactly what I was. You and John were always committed to the idea of adoption. Apart from the vision you had when you were 12, why were you both committed to that idea? Because of the world we were living in and the things that we were learning, and particularly me with, you know, seeing what was happening elsewhere in the world, learning about world studies, sort of seeing that, you know, I didn't feel valued as a child. 
Was a birth child the only way? There were all these children in need. I really embraced the idea that there of freedom to choose another way. Was that unusual at that time? It probably was a bit, but in a way not as unusual as it is now for the purposes that we intended. Even though we could have our own children, we chose this. Nowadays, I don't know that there's many people that choose to adopt over having their own. I think, you know, we were very mindful of overpopulation. You know, I think our world now is, it's not as happy a place in some ways for me. We're so focused on living our own life, striving for economic benefits. You know, not a lot of people are really thinking of others in need and you know, sometimes it's a very lonely place to be. But, you know, I, I don't regret for a minute that we decided to do this. I, I'm proud of the, the path we chose. We were quite free of ego and I'm happy with what we decided to do. Did your family and friends understand your reasons for, for choosing this path? Not all. Um, and that's why really for a lot of people that I know, they're going to get a shock um, when they read my book, if they do, because there's a lot of things in there that most people would not have had a clue that we were thinking and, and our beliefs. They just sort of took it from their own point of view that either um, we uh, couldn't have children and then they were sympathetic or they gave up asking, when are you going to have children? We're all having children now. Why aren't you doing the same? What's wrong with you? You know, it was quite a a discriminatory time if you didn't follow the social norms. Mm. I imagine it would probably be quite similar now if people chose to adopt over having their own, like you just mentioned. Yes, I'm sure that's the case. It could even be more so. What was it like when Saru first came to you? He was six years old, so he would still have the memories of his home and uh, birth family, was it a difficult transition when he came to you? No, because again, his normal was that he didn't have a family. He'd lost his first family. So he came knowing that it was not possible for him to be with his first family. So when he came to us, he was remarkably compliant and accepting of us. And because when, when we gained the approval to adopt, we sent a file to India, which was the country of our choice, and we asked for a child. We didn't say boy, girl, you know, one-year-old baby. We just wanted to give a child our love and protection and care. And so we were very accepting of him as he was offered to us, and he was accepting of us because we had asked for him in our life. And mm. so it was a very, it was quite a lovely experience. How, how did you feel when Saru, as a young man, started searching for his family? Well, I get asked that question a lot. And most people sort of feel that there might be the worry and insecurity that you would lose him if he found his first family. But, you know, I don't take my role as his mother as I possess him like an item. I've taken on the role to be 
his mother as he needed. But you don't ever really own a person. And of course, now he's a man and living in Spain most of the time. (laughs) So I'm sort of trying to get used to my new norm of him not in my life. So I mentioned in the introduction that this was a story about families torn apart and then remade and then remade again. And it feels in this book, you tell the story of your parents and how they were torn from their families and also the difficulty of coming together in Australia, but then you forming your own family and you remade a family with your husband, John, and with your boys. And then I said it was a story of families remade and then remade again because you also travelled to India to meet Saru's birth mother. It feels like there was another remaking at that stage. Can you tell us what it was like meeting her? Well, it's right up there in the big experiences of life. So for me, of course, I'd welcomed two sons from overseas. Um, I'd had, obviously, a highlight. I got married. I'm still married to John after 50 years. You know, all of those things are highlights. But certainly meeting Fatima was quite a blessing and it answered a lot of things for me, you know, because... When Saru arrived, he was very calm and, you know, I knew he wasn't an abused child. He wasn't frightened or fearful. He had no marks on his body. He had been treated as best he could be considering his circumstances. And he also, you know, he accepted that was his life then. So when I met Fatima, you know, I could ask her firstly, whether she believed he was still alive, you know, because that had played on my mind a lot. I knew somewhere out there, there was a woman who'd given birth to my son who didn't know where he was Mm. and he just vanished out of her life. And, you know, we discussed how he'd got lost on the train. He didn't know where he'd come from, but she existed somewhere. And I, I believe she was still alive. There was no reason to think that she had passed away. So um, for her to answer my question, you know, that was a pretty powerful moment and it, I hadn't realised I'd held, held so much stress about it and worry and anxiety because when she said she always believed and could sense that, yes, he was okay, I, I really did crash quite badly then and there was lots of tears happening and so forth. But then she took that as that question of will I be fearing the loss of my son, my adopted son? And then the table sort of turned around and then in turn she's comforting me and she said those magic words, don't worry, he is your son, I give you my son. And that didn't help me at all, I cried more. But (laughs) (laughs) But I I just think what a woman, what a woman to say that to me, this privileged Western woman who had really, apart from the first 16 years of her life, I had a blessed life. Hmm. And here is this poor woman, frail, worked like a slave all her life, lost two sons on one night, abandoned by her husband, and she's comforting me. When I read this book, for me, what comes out of it is 
the incredible ability for families to be remade and reconnected, for someone like yourself to come from such trauma and still be able to create such a loving family in itself is a really hopeful, inspiring story. Um, Entwined with what Saru's experience was and, and you meeting his birth mother and having a strong and positive connection with her. That's, to me, the heart of the story is these circles that seem to keep coming around, but in a positive way. You know, we don't have enough of those stories in the world, I don't think. I I purposefully tried to bring that about and through the process of the book, I was writing in a circle so that we end up back right at that core thought of what humanity should be. And I especially hope that for people who read it, it might free them from the thought, which is in a way quite an accepted thing, that if you have a busted start, you're going to have a busted forever. And I don't believe that. I lived it. I didn't use my past as an excuse for bad behaviour or going in the wrong direction and becoming a horrible person or a failure or not trying hard in my life to make the best life I could. My past is just that. It's not my future. And I really have always believed that. And I that's why I find a lot of social problems that we see, particularly in Australia, in certain parts of our society, that sometimes there is too much of an excuse about the past making you be like this. But we all do, at some point, arrive at that fork in the road of our life. And we can go down the hill or we can go up the hill and I couldn't for a minute ever say I use my um, family, my parents' uh, failures in providing for me, educating me. That is no excuse for me not living my best life. And it almost feels in some ways that it made you work harder to be the person you are and to be able to tell this story. That's very true, Siobhan. I really could have been the poor me, but boy, no, I'd had enough of that. <laughs> you know, I was done. <laughs> so it is an, such an incredible story. Thank you so much for talking with us about it today. My pleasure and thanks for having me. That's Sue Briley and Sue's book is called Lioness. You can find links to where you can get a copy in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.